Welcome to Right Now Workshop Podcast, where you can write a book and change the world. I'm your host, Kitty Buholtz, and this is episode 240, Reaching Out with Deep Emotion, an interview with Cynthia Rookti, coming to you on Thursday, March 18th, 2021. I just had the most amazing conversation with Cynthia. This woman can write deep, strong, gut-wrenching emotion like no one I know. And she hasn't done it just once. She's got over 30 books out, fiction and nonfiction, over 40 awards. And I'm just like, yes, please tell me how, how can I write books that have such amazing emotion? I mean, I was reading her newest book, Facing the Dawn, asking myself, you know, you can't ask her in the interview, has this happened to you? Because that might turn out to be quite rude or just difficult or painful if it were true. But no, oh, so, okay. <laughs> we'll just let her talk about how she did it and that sort of thing. But let me just say, wow, because as we know, in writing, in communicating through story in any way with people, whether it's fiction or nonfiction, speaking to a group or doing uh, something that's just on, on paper, all of the different ways that we communicate, we touch people by touching their emotions. You know, we help people by helping them understand that we get how it feels to be in that space. And we want to help them genuinely. And whether you're writing fiction or nonfiction, if people can read your work and think, oh my gosh, someone gets how I feel. That's an amazing thing to make someone not feel like they're the only one. You know how it feels when you're like, oh, thank goodness, I'm not the only one who thinks that, feels that, does that. It's just like, oh, such a feeling of relief. Because we don't live in tri nomadic tribes anymore, mostly, I think we're looking for ways that we can belong. Oh, this weird thing about me, I'm not an outsider. There is a tribe that I wasn't sure, only hoped existed. And within this tribe, we all do or think or feel this one really weird thing, or at least it feels weird to me right now. But now that I realize other people feel that way, then maybe it doesn't feel so weird, which makes me feel a whole lot better. And that's what we can do with our writing. And Cynthia obviously has done a great job with her writing in that regard. Now, let me just tell you something to look out for in the interview. Cynthia also mentions when she was first looking to publish her first book, uh, you know, and she's going to writers conferences, she's meeting people, she's, I think she said she was taking classes. So she's looking for ways to improve her work and get it out into the world so that it becomes a published book that people can read. And then someone gave her some advice that was really difficult. And I think that she says in the interview, if she hadn't taken that advice, she's not sure that she would be published. Certainly wouldn't be published with that book. And I want you to listen and pay attention to the advice that they gave her because it rocked my world too. And, and I'm still thinking to myself, wow, how can I take that advice? That's tough. I really want to do it, but it will be also kind of scary. Um, but it would be worth it, right? I mean, if you wrote books that changed other people's hearts and minds and maybe even lives, that would be totally worth the time we spend. And you know, I go on and on about this because it's true. And I'm not sure that you have enough people telling you this in your life. The books that you're writing can change people's lives. If only for a moment while they get a moment of peace after a really long, tough day, or because it changes the way that they think about something, think of some of your favorite writing books. Think of your favorite, favorite one. 
how did it change you? How did it change you as a writer? And how did it change what you wrote? So no matter what you're writing, fiction or nonfiction or speeches or whatever, plays, screenplays, songs, musicals, whatever you're writing, it might be just the right thing for the right people at the right time. And so it is worth your time to do it. I had uh, one client who is 88 years old and I helped him self-publish his very first book, a thriller. And he was so excited. He's got more books in the works, more books coming out. And I just could not be happier working with him. He was so excited to get his work out there into the world and then learn how to figure out how to get people to know that it was there and buy it and read it. And it was, it was so much fun working with him. Somebody else that I worked with was in their 30s and they wanted to write a nonfiction book that had to do with the work that they do on an everyday basis, um, but to make it particularly appealing. And they were a really good speaker. They are. They are a really good speaker and a really good writer. And I helped this fellow finish the book that he had inside him, but he wasn't exactly sure how to pull, pull out and then self-publish the book. And those are the two things that I do. I help people finish their books and I help people publish their books. Now, I'm not a publisher myself, so I can only give advice on if you want to use a traditional publisher. And a lot of times the first step is find the right agent for you. And of course that has sub, -step, sub steps too. Um, but, but the two things that I do coaching wise is I help people finish your book and I help people self-publish your book. Those are the names of the two programs. Now, regardless of whether or not you um, need help doing one of those two things right now, I do want you to always be looking for and finding encouragement in this show. Otherwise, this is a waste of my time. If I'm not changing your world, I'm wasting both of our time. And that is what I want you to stop thinking about that your writing might be wasting your time. It is not. Your writing is not a waste of your time, regardless of how long you get to spend doing it each week, whether if it's 60 hours a week or one hour a week, it is not wasting your time. And it's very important that you believe in yourself and believe in your work and be looking for ways that you can make better creations and that you finish them and get them out in front of people. Even if you're writing a book that's just for your family and you're not planning on publishing it, you know, as far as uh, to make sales and to make money, that is important. When I think of all the stories that I only heard once growing up and now my parents and my grandparents are dead. I can't be reminded of those stories anymore. They're just gone. Imagine how awesome it would be if someone in your family wrote down all the stories while people were still around to remember them and pass them on to the next generation. You know, I just had a great niece. Is that right? My nephew just had a daughter. No, sorry. <laughs> yes, that is true. One nephew had a daughter and one nephew had a son just um, very, very, very recently. And these people will never hear my grandfather's funny tales about how he knew it was time to go home and get married to my grandmother because of something his soon-to-be father-in-law said to him. And it's just the funniest little thing. And it, it's like a five-minute story. And yet I've got to try to remember to tell these kids this funny story of their um, great, great great grandfather? Yeah. No, two greats, two greats. Because it's it connects you. So whatever it is that you're writing, 
keep going, finish it. If you need help, reach out to me, go to right now, workshop forward slash writing coach, see what sorts of things that I can do for you. If I can get on a call with you and even help you to figure out what your next step is great. If I can't actually help you with one of my programs, I can at least point you in some good directions. So just keep going, just keep going. And if you need some help, go to my website, there's a place there that you can um, fill out a, a form so that you can contact me or just email me at kitty at kittybuholtz.com because I do want to help you. What if you're one of the people who changes the whole world? What if you wrote a book that somehow um, brought more, uh, brought us closer to world peace, brought us closer to protecting our planet so that it's around for a few more generations so that my great niece and great nephew have great, great grandchildren too, who have food to eat and air to breathe <laughs> and yours, yours, obviously you have tons of people. Okay. I'm just going to stop because <laughs> sometimes I just get so excited about the things that I'm really passionate about and I want to share them. And then I sort of forget sometimes when to stop. So I'll stop. But there you go. Please be encouraged. Keep going. Listen to this episode. Listen to what Cynthia says is the best writing advice that she got that helped her publish her first book. And we're talking about a woman who has more writing awards than she ha even has books out. That's amazing. Listen to her. <laughs> okay. I'm going to step down off of the um, heart on my sleeve box. <laughs> and let's listen to Cynthia tell her story about writing and have a great writing week yourself. Today's guest is Cynthia Rookti. Cynthia is the award-winning author of more than 30 books, including the novels Afraid of the Light, Miles from Where We Started, They Almost Always Come Home, and her new book, Facing the Dawn. Her books have been honored with more than 40 readers, reviewers, and retailers awards, including Romantic Times Inspirational Novel of the Year, four Sela Awards, and five Christian Retailing's Best Awards. She has also been a finalist for many others, including The Carol and The Christie. Former president of and current professional relations liaison for American Christian fiction writers, Cynthia lives in Wisconsin. Welcome, Cynthia. Thank you so much, Kitty. I'm happy to be here. I'm happy to have you too. I've been uh, emailing with you back and forth a little bit. Turns out we have mutual friends yes. and plus I'm from Michigan. So you being from Wisconsin, it's like we're neighbors. Like we're neighbors practically. Yes. Practically. <laughs> with when we body we always, of water. When we, we always say when we're done with the weather, we send it on to Michigan. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Yes. It's so funny because now that I live in Malmö, Sweden, I have some friends who live in London and every once in a while I'll be like, so it's snowing here. Did you have snow two days ago? And they're like, yeah, but we have sun now. So you should have sun in two days. <laughs> we love that. Love that. It's fun. You know, what's really weird to me. I've lived in Michigan my whole life. I was born in Indiana, then Chicago. By the time I was five, we moved to Michigan and I lived there until uh, John and I got married and we moved away when we were 25. I had never in my life heard of or eaten cheese curds until oh. I was in my forties. <gasps> oh, what a loss. I know. 40 years when you could have been eating cheese curds. Yes. <gasps> I went to Chicago and my friend was like, you've never had cheese curds. How is that even possible? I'm like, I don't know. Is it good? She's like, oh my gosh. And yeah. we had cheese curds like three times while I was there for a weekend. It's our state food. 
It, it's, oh my gosh, I should, I should move to Wisconsin, but I'm afraid that the problem I'm having with my clothes right now would only get worse. Uh, <laughs> yes, that is true. Cheese, cheese curds, for those who don't know, are just the most, they're like the freshest cheese you can possibly imagine. And they squeak when you bite into them, which may sound disgusting, but if they get a little, if they've been in the fridge at all, if you put them in the microwave for about five seconds, they come back to that ooey gooey squeaky loveliness. So there's the tip for the day for food. And it it definitely was thinking to myself, I've got to put these in a book somewhere. (laughs) Oh yeah. Yes. I, oh yeah. I'd said it just like I would have from Wisconsin. Yep. True. (laughs) Well, listen, um, there's a thousand things to talk about. You and I have also talked about what should we talk about? Well, there, we're definitely going to have you on the show again and we haven't even started. (laughs) Yep. But um, we want to talk about your new book, which at the time that people are listening to this has just recently been released. Yay! Yay. Oh, if you're not watching, I don't have a, um, I don't have a book cover, but uh, it's Facing the Dawn from Ravel. And um, yes, fresh off the press, as they say, or hot off the press. Nice. Awesome. Now, um, I personally, well, you know what, I want to talk about the book, but let's just Mm -hmm. talk about um, how did you get started? You've been in the business a really long time and from all sorts of different angles. So just give Mm -hmm. us the nickel tour. I was the nickel to her over dear. Um, (laughs) I actually thought I was going to work in the chemistry laboratory for my life's work and that that would be the supplement to a wife and a mom homemaker. And uh, I was in the in the chemistry lab and wanted to be home with the kids. So after about seven years of that, I, we made that really hard decision to go to one income, but I wanted to keep my mind active too when I was making these fabulous birthday parties and cleaning up messes and things. So I took some correspondence courses in writing. The last assignment for the last course was to create a radio script for a 15 minute radio broadcast. And I had no interest in that whatsoever. I I thought newspaper articles, magazine articles, that sounds good. Maybe a book someday. But writing for radio, I had no interest. I hadn't even heard of a 15-minute program before. What was that going to be like? So I set it aside for maybe eight or nine months. I don't know if any of your listeners ever procrastinate, but I did. (laughs) And at the end of that time, I took out that assignment and filled it out just because I wanted to get my certificate and be done with the course and couldn't until I did that assignment. Within about two weeks of getting that certificate that said I had completed the course and that last assignment, I passed, but it wasn't my best work. Um, I had an opportunity to meet a woman who had just been given, not this is not a joke, 15 minutes of free airtime on a radio station halfway across the country from me. And we were together for four days doing a, a, a ministry project together. And at the end of the four days, I thought that she might take a couple of the ideas that I had tossed out to her, but I certainly had no experience or anything. But at the end of our time together, she handed me the business card for the station and said, send the first program here. 
And that was the beginning of this. And I thought, I what? I have no equipment. I really have no experience. I didn't even really have interest in it. But that led to a stint of 33 years on the radio with this um, broadcast that was to help with the spiritual and faith needs of stay-at-home moms, which then wound up ministering to pastors too. And um, we had farmers riding their tractors listening to the broadcast. It was wide, much more wide ranging than we ever would have imagined. And it um, at one time was reaching 48 uh, stations across the United States and wow. then abroad as well, uh, as soon as um, the internet came into play and they could do live streaming, the radio stations could do live streaming. So what a ride. And as we got, my radio partner was my neighbor lady who had was really good with the red pen. So I would write the scripts, she would edit them. And then the two of us were the on-air voices for this first eight minutes or so was a, um, was a scripted scene from everyday life. And then we would have a musical interlude and some devotional thoughts or some kind of teaching, some kind of helpful tip or point to help us navigate life. And the that meant that I was writing fiction and nonfiction all the time for right. all those 33 years. At the end of our at the end of the run of that, it was on Monday through Friday, every single day. And it it was a lot of work, but we we loved it by that time. We knew that it was where we were supposed to be. But my neighbor lady was 22 years older than I was. Her husband had taken ill, so we knew it was time to retire the broadcast. And I had, a few years before that, started to investigate what would it take? I've been writing for 33 years professionally. What would it take to write a novel or a whole book, a whole nonfiction book. So I went to writers conferences, which is one of my key things that I recommend is whether virtual or in person to get yourself to a writers conference, went to plenty of those found out how much I didn't know, um, and began to study and read and eventually then um, it was 2010. When my first novel released, They Almost Always Come Home. And that had been, I can't do the math really well at this hour, but um, that had been like decades that I'd been writing professionally before I had my first book wow. traditionally published. Wow, that's amazing. That was not a nickel variety of how to, but how do you tell that story? And yeah. usually it takes four hours to tell. I thought I did pretty well. <laughs> I think so too. Yeah. So this is how I was a chemist and a mom and became a radio show host. Yeah, this is how this is a natural path. Don't right. you think? It's right. I, I think that easy everybody transitions. could try it. Yeah. <laughs> oh my gosh. Wow. Okay. So so you'd been doing this radio show, doing lots of writing then every week, mm -hmm. and then um, decided to write a book, got your first book traditionally published, um, knew that the radio show was ending, and then decided, wow, this book writing thing is amazing. This is my thing. My next thing. My next thing. I think that's a great way to put it, Kitty, because I had had, um, I, 
I was content with the radio writing, but I had no idea that all those years were really preparation for his next step. I needed to be, I needed to be faithful with what I was doing. I needed to hone my skills, hone the craft, figure out punctuation, figure out. And this was interesting and might be interesting to some writers too, that I had learned to write for the ear all those years. And that then made a difference in the way that I wrote for the printed page, because I loved how words sounded to the ear. I had to pay attention to the rhythm. I had to pay attention to if I have no, he said, she said, will people still know who's speaking? If I, if we had no um, setup of the setting, is the reader or the listener still going to be engaged in what's being put down on the paper? So all of that was not just practice, but preparation for what the next stage would be. And that's something too, I think that might encourage people is we often get in our heads I want to write novels. Maybe there's another angle. Maybe your storytelling efforts are best used in nonfiction. Or maybe your gift is to tell somebody else's story, not your own, to come alongside them and tell someone else's story. Or maybe you are the kind of writer who writes best in a three-minute stint of something that can be read quickly. And that's there's no shame in that. Because having your name on a book is not the epitome of writing success. Reaching and touching readers' hearts is the epitome of success. Yes, yes. I love that. And that's a good point. There's so many parts of our lives that um, I don't know if it's me or if it's humans. I haven't. In all the many books that I love to read on neuroscience, I haven't actually come across this idea, um, whether or not we all compartmentalize our life or if it's just something that some people do. But I cannot tell you the number of times that somebody's like, oh my gosh, that's an amazing, crazy story about that thing that happened to you when you were 18. You should write that. And then I go, oh, I never thought of that. <laughs> like, yeah. I'm so used to writing fiction, you know, stories that I just make mm-hmm. up in my head that I, I forget to even ask myself whether or not something else interesting has happened. And so there's so many other things that like you got into the radio show, I imagine partially at least because you were a mom and the show was for moms. Mm-hmm. So you had the experience. So mm-hmm. I guess there's a lot of things in our lives we could be asking ourselves, was there some interesting place that I could put this? Even the chemistry. I mean, mm-hmm. I have a different friend who uh, used to be a biochemist and then she ended up writing a dystopian fiction. So she would use her biochemistry to create these crazy ways that how the world would end. <laughs> Everything we're experiencing in life is just fodder for what we write. Every, yes. And sometimes it doesn't come back into our writing until many, many years later, but we do. We file it away. We file away now not just what happened, but how we felt when it happened. Yeah. Uh, we file away the whole, um, the whole concept of how people around us are reacting. Uh, what's the world like? What, what are the, we, we remember tastes and smells and all that, that, and all of that gets put into that file folder that <laughs> blossoms and balloons in a writer's mind. And sometimes they'll come back in a very direct way in our writing. Sometimes we don't even realize, oh, that's from that moment when I sat in grandma's kitchen and she gave me the last cinnamon roll. <laughs> and and we're, we realized that just came out in a nonfiction book 
40 years later or something, but um, the the emotional part of it, how things make us feel was really key in the first novel that I ever had published, which is They Almost Always Come Home. I'd been writing novels for a while. I'd write, written novellas. I had maybe three or four that I considered complete, but they were going nowhere uh, with editors and publishing houses. I didn't have an agent at the time, but my heart was, was open. I was, I had the sense that I needed to keep being brave. And there was someone at a writer's conference who had suggested write the book that will cost you the most emotionally to write. Wow. And I considered the thought. It made me think, I don't think I have a book like that. No, I don't think, oh, maybe I do. And I recalled that a few years earlier, my husband almost didn't come home from his canoe trip to Canada. Wow. He got deathly ill up in the wilderness, far away from anything, was five days lying in his tent, unable to communicate with anybody, except when a passing canoeist would come by. My Our 21-year-old son was with him at the time, and, and um, our son would send little notes uh, with any canoeist that passed by they were still two days away from the ranger station if the winds were right. So in the end, he eventually was um, within about an hour of death when the float plane was finally able to land and pick him up and take him to a hospital. He was in the ICU for some time. And even then we weren't sure he was going to make it. He wow. did. He yeah. came back to me. But then it made me think of all that just cesspool of emotions that came with that experience. And I began to do what a writer does, all the what ifs. What if there was a woman who wasn't at all sure she wanted her husband to come home? And, and what would have made her feel that way in an otherwise reasonable marriage? What, what could that have been like? And that experimenting with the what ifs led to the book that eventually became the first book that got published. So wow. maybe there's a writer out there who's thinking, I, what I, this, the deep emotional connection to, oh, and what they've been trying to express in nonfiction, they, they might look at that and realize I've been leaving emotion out of this. What if I let the emotion show up on the page? What would, what the, would that blog post or that, nonfiction book or that magazine article look like if I let emotion show up on the page yeah. and I let myself go back to remember something either from my past or from walking alongside someone else. Wow. That's amazing because, so here's the funny thing. Um, and it's, it's sometimes I feel like I should be a little bit embarrassed. And I'm like, there are too many writers and too many books in the world and life is too short. There's no way I could have possibly read everything. So I haven't read your books before, um, any of your work before. Uh, and in general, I read a lot of rom-com romantic comedies mm -hmm. um, and a lot of supernatural suspense that, you know, borders on horror. I, I don't know why <laughs> those are two of my favorite genres. You people always surprise me. <laughs> So I'm reading your book and I'm thinking, I can't go to sleep now. I mean, <laughs> like 
this woman is so torn up. How could all these bad things and more bad things happen and more bad things? Mm. And I'm like, okay, I can't read the, read this right before I go to sleep. And then I'm thinking how in the world, you know, like, what is it that you, that you write? Um, the question, I guess, is sort of like, what do you think that that you're pulling out of yourself and are all of your books like so intense? I mean, it is emotionally mm -hmm. intense. It's great. Um, but I would be reading it and sometimes think, I don't know how I could ever come up with a story that had like this much intensity to it. So tell us a little bit about, I don't know, your process or what you are drawn to in a story. That's a great, great question, Kitty, because it, you, you can't just fake it but imagination does definitely come into play. So wherever we get our ideas from, and writers' brains are unique, we know that, but wherever we get our ideas from and wherever we start going with them, um, there, I know there are author friends of mine who write completely different kinds of stories than I do. This is the place where I feel like I've um, hit my stride or this is my sweet spot. Can I write a rom-com? Yep. I, I do at Christmas time. Sometimes <laughs> nice. I love rom-coms that are centered around Christmas and love delving into that. But my primary place is, and, and even when I write nonfiction, I'm, I think about this nonfiction book I'm writing is the book I want to hand to the characters in my novel. Uh -huh. This is the book they need to read. Yeah. But, but I, but because there are other authors who don't go to that place where they where it's the, the intensity as you described or some they're tough topics and my goal is to handle tough topics in a tender way uh -huh. and so that the reader is always left with hope so that hope shows up throughout threaded throughout not necessarily just at the end in the last chapter but um, feeling the real and sometimes very raw emotions. And it, it's not all that different from the horror or thriller yeah. where what the reader, what the writer wants is for the reader to feel scared or tense. And in this place, it's, I want the reader to feel what the character's going through. Yeah. And even when it's hard. And sometimes people would say, well, why, why would I want to pick up a book that has grief in it and loss in it? Well, because you probably have had grief or loss. Or, and if you haven't, which would be rare, um, the people around you have. So one of my key thoughts is I would love my readers to walk away from my books feeling like they had learned something about themselves and they had learned something about the people around them. Yeah. And and not just in a, not certainly not in a teaching way. Maybe I should word it better this way. They have felt something about themselves yeah. and they have felt something about the people around them. I like that. That's really good because um, the whole book, I'm definitely um, feeling it, uh, you know, I'm, I'm, part of me is still the reader going, holy cow, this woman's had the worst couple of years. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> Life um, hasn't been good to her. <laughs> yeah, no, no. Um, but then there's these other things that happen in the, in the secondary characters that come in. And, um, mm. you know, it's so, it's so funny the way that uh, she started calling her best friend that she hasn't seen forever, um, mm -hmm. her forever friend, because mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, wow, I haven't heard anybody describe, I haven't heard any adult describe their friends that way. Mostly you hear uh, forever homes for um adoptable pets mm -hmm. you know we're looking for his forever home um mm -hmm. or kids saying you know my mm -hmm. bff um but i loved the way that you 
like delved into the relationships that women have with each other and mm -hmm. how very realistic it is that sometimes you're like, okay, you are 30 seconds away from getting punched. You better back down, you know? <laughs> and yet you needed your friend, whether you wanted to admit it or not mm -hmm. to push you, you know, just that much, a little bit more, a little bit more, or mm -hmm. it, it was, I love the best friends. <laughs> I, if they were, that relationship was among my favorites too in the book as I was writing Facing the Dawn. There's a, the, the, and there was a spark to that as well. Just as I'm in the middle of writing and I'm just figuring out who, who are those additional characters that are going to be important to this story. Uh, because initially it looked like the main character, Mara, was completely alone. She had no place to turn, nobody to lean on, as one thing after another kind of piled onto her, which I don't think is as unreasonable for people to imagine as yeah. it might have been even a few years ago, but one thing after another. And in, in the process <clears throat> of writing the book and thinking through the characters, I reconnected with one of my forever friends, we had known each other since we were probably first, second, third grade or second, third, fourth grade, something like that. And our families were very close. I, uh, we, we were dear, dear friends. We saw each other very infrequently. And then over the years, after we grew up and got married, each of us, and got into our professions and um, working with our families, never, ever, ever, ever saw each other. So rare. Um, she, we would send Christmas cards back and forth. We, when more people were writing long letters back in the old days, we did for a while. And then life of course, consumed us. And it was the Christmas cards. Then the era came when, when uh, she was writing the Christmas cards to me, and I had to let Christmas cards go on my list of to do's. But she was so faithful. And every time she would sign a letter or a Christmas card, your forever friend, Cheryl. Aww. So as I'm writing this book, we saw noticed each other on Facebook. And we said, why can't we have a Zoom conversation? So we did after many, many years of not seeing each other face to face, spent two hours just catching up and watching how our paths had crossed in experiences far more closely than we ever would have dreamed, way beyond what you can put in a Christmas letter or a small note. And the, the heart connection with that forever friend was so strong and I thought, I've had several people like that in my life. They are so rare and beautiful and precious to us. I need to have a forever friend in this story. And that wound up being part of the main thrust of why, why those characters were in there. Wow. And then brand new friends who come along quickly beside us. That happens too. And sometimes just clear out of the blue, those uh, friends that come alongside us quickly. So I enjoyed exploring that part of the story as well. And again, that relationship isn't always perfect. It has its own flaws, but being able to count on someone who is always faithful, just steady as a rock and what it's like to be able to hang onto a rock when you're going through a <laughs> rocky spot in your life. Yeah. 
Oh, that's beautiful. Now, for someone like me, I met my husband, John, when I was 19. Uh, we've been married 30 years. And I uh, was realizing when I was preparing for the interview with you, I was like, oh, that's interesting. I need to ask this question because the um, heroine in my current novel is a new young wit widow with two children. Mm -hmm. and, I, and I haven't been thinking too much about, um, because it's a romantic comedy, I need uh -huh. it to not be too, but I also need for the moments that are the moments that she cries, um, or whatever happens, I need that to feel totally realistic. Mm -hmm. So, uh, I, I have no idea whether or not, you know, you have experiences like any mm -hmm. of the characters in your books, but what do you suggest to writers when they need to go into an emotional place that they've never been, but it's important to the story that this feel authentic. What are mm -hmm. some of the ideas that you have for that? There are, oftentimes there are three, maybe, maybe more than that, but three probably places that we can get that kind of uh, education. Uh, one of them is obviously from the things we've experienced ourselves. Uh, I felt that I'd been given as one of, you know, if a writer is going to write for a long time, they have to believe that they've been given a gift that not everybody has, that there may oftentimes people will come and say, wow, you could express that thing that I felt, but I wasn't able to express. And that's kind of what we're fed by when we move yeah. forward. Okay. Apparently not everybody thinks this way or feels this way. So I will be a writer. And um, as we're going through, it's the so oftentimes it is those things we, we get a flash of what it was. I get a flash of what it was like to sit at my mother's bedside when she was dying or my grandfather. I get a flash of when a, a child or a grandchild was sick or going through a, a, a really traumatic place emotionally or mentally. Um, I feel what I felt. I've watched my friends, but I've watched with a listening ear, a true listening ear. And I think writers will do themselves a great, great favor if they don't just use their eyes as a sense, but they use also the, the connection with empathy with those around them. And if you don't have a gift of empathy, maybe ask for it or develop it or exercise it or work on it because that gift of empathy is going to really help the writing that you do. Uh, sometimes I get it from how I feel when I'm watching a movie or reading somebody else's book. Yeah. And I notice what they leave out. And that's sometimes the most poignant part. Or I notice that it was it was a glance, it wasn't words, or it was a, a an intake that sharp intake of breath, and that's what communicated what was happening emotionally. So we draw from a lot of different places. It's it's something that's hard to teach. It's almost something that you have to be willing to sit down to the table and uh, collect that yeah. collect other people's emotions in order to be able to uh to write authentically about it because we can make up all kinds of things about what that must feel like or what it must have been like or that she was crying all the time no typically we go about our lives we may be sarcastic about what we're trying to deal with and then boom we're hit with that wave of grief again and yeah. that's a 
a tale that almost everybody tells when they've been through a season like that. So you're writing a rom-com with a new widow. It's going to be very interesting because there will be comedy in it and there will be rom in it. There will be romance <laughs> in it. But, uh, but, and as a new widow, she's probably resisting the romance initially because she's a new widow yeah. and it seems dishonoring for her to consider any other person when she's lost this person, whether she loved him deeply or she loved him um, surfacely. Right. So all kinds of, um, all kinds of those resources of where do we draw from to, to write authentically about it. But our goal really should always be writing authentically, not what might be considered traditionally or in a canned way. Yes. Yes. And I like your idea. Um, you said you didn't think it was probably something that you could teach people to write this way. But um, I think what you gave us is teaching us how to listen and watch and hear so that we can collect these experiences, mm -hmm. like even from other people. I can't think of who it was. It was somebody that I know, so not a stranger. Um, and, I, and it was on camera. So it was sometime in this last year that we've been having, you know, everybody at home and doing Zoom. And I remember the person, it was a man speaking uh, about something uh, that had, you know, emotional significance to him. And he was speaking just normally, normally speaking. And then he just paused in the middle of a sentence and he looked down at his notes and the it was just a long enough pause for you to start getting uncomfortable. And if you were looking away, you were looking at the screen now going, what's going on? Why is he pausing? And then he cleared his throat and there's another little bit of a pause. And then he kept on going. And I would, and then I almost started to cry because I was like, oh. oh my gosh, he's trying not to cry. Oh. I was like, oh my. And then, oh. yeah, my writer brain was like, oh, remember that. This is how mm. men like show that they're trying not to cry as opposed to, you know, it wouldn't be to sit, to show a woman whose chin quivers where she's trying not to cry sounds normal to me, but to say that a man did that, that would not sound normal to me. So collecting these experiences is part of what you're talking about and then drawing from them later. Right. And, and I think you brought up something very interesting that the personality, not, not just the gender, but the personality of the person will make a big difference as well. Some people intentionally use humor to pass off what is a very deep feeling. They don't want to linger in that deep feeling anymore or very long. So they use humor, but in, but the, the tuned in listening ear is going to see what's behind that or, and some others are stoic. They are going to, Oh, this happened to me. That's too bad. Here we go. Let's we're moving on. We're pressing yeah. on, but with them as well, almost a hundred percent of the time, there's going to be that wave that hits them sometimes in a very inappropriate moment or in a very unexpected way. I remember after my mother passed away, she had had heart congestive heart failure for a long, long, long time. And even when she was in a residence facility for the end of her life, uh, the meals that they could prepare for her had still had too much salt in it, even though they were low salt meals. Wow. So I would make her meals for her and take them to the residence facility and walking up and down the grocery store aisles all the time looking for what is something that has absolutely no salt in it or is like low, 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 low salt. Yeah. And 
probably a month after she passed away and she passed away in many ways with a smile on her face because she had lived a long, long life and lived far longer than anybody expected she would. I was walking down the aisles of the grocery store and I reached for a can of something that I was surprised and happy to see it had absolutely no salt in it. And then realized in that moment, I don't need this anymore. And that wave came over me of my mom is gone and I won't see her again on this earth. And so like a can of soup, (laughs) a can of soup can be a trigger for grief. Our witnessing that in others or feeling that in ourselves is what helps us write it into our stories. Brilliant. And it was interesting what you said. And I think that, um, I think that uh, in Lisa Cron's new book, uh, Lisa Cron wrote Wired for Story and Story Genius. Mm-hmm. And she was on the show a couple of weeks ago. By, by the time this airs, it will have been a couple of weeks ago, talking about her n- new book, Story or Die. And it's less for writers and more for people just navigating life, mm-hmm. uh, business people trying to figure out how to speak and connect to their customers. But one of the things that she mentions in the book is that story helps us learn empathy. Mm. Absolutely. That's so important. And what you were saying is that we don't always realize that, um, well, one of the other things that's in that book, Story or Die, is that um, we also tend to think as humans that uh, everybody is probably pretty much like us. Mm -hmm. So I think it's very important that we remember that if we are the kinds of people who either write down fiction stories or create a story to make something in nonfiction, like interesting and helpful to somebody else, we have to remind ourselves that um, we are one of a a small portion of people who do this well, Mm -hmm. and that what we are helping people to do is learn empathy themselves Mm -hmm. about situations that they haven't experienced before, but maybe um, then later they can say, oh, you know what, Uh, whether I remember where I got this idea or not, I think what my best friend needs right now is just somebody to come alongside, even if we just sit there and stare at a painting and drink coffee. You know, when we're, let's use grief as an example again, grief or loss, because they are so closely tied together. It doesn't have to be the loss of a loved one, but grief or very heavy loss. We will find usually in the same scene that there will be somebody who will be the person to say, okay, go get a rag, like with spilled milk, go get a rag. And another one will say, okay, move your glass away from the edge of the table so that that doesn't happen again. And then another person within the same family even may put their arm around the child who spilled the milk and say, oh, honey, I'm so sorry. It's going to be okay. We'll take care of it. And and a fourth person maybe who will um, uh, begin immediately to write a list of ways to prevent this from the future, or we're going to have to have a family meeting to talk about how not to spill your milk. So, and And within life, it's like that as well. There are uh, mama dies or daddy dies. One person is going to run to the kitchen and start doing dishes because she needs to be alone and she needs to process alone. And another person will say, I cannot be alone. I have to have people around me. Let's talk about the funny things about when mama died. And, and an, another person still is going to go shovel the snow out of the driveway so that uh, other visiting relatives can come in. Everybody will have a role. I remember distinctly 
regarding that when my father passed away, and this isn't all about grief, but it's a, it's a strong emotion. So we know if we talk about that, we can uh, extrapolate that to other emotions that we might feel. Yeah. But when my father passed away, it was in the middle of a blinding, cold, bitter, blitter, bitter snowstorm, blizzard, ice storm as well. And several things happened just in that time that uh, were uh, so incredible to us as a family. Yep, there was laughter going on in the living room. My um, my not yet sister-in-law showed up at the house and made herself in charge of the kitchen because none of us could face it. And when we saw that happen, we said to our brother, keep her. <laughs> Because she knows how to minister to a family in grief right now. We couldn't handle logging in all the casseroles coming to the door, but she did. So we could give good thank you notes out later. But there was a little, we looked out, not everybody of the family had arrived yet. We looked out into the snowstorm and you can imagine what a street light at the end of our driveway would have looked like in that kind of blowing snow with kind of a pinkish yellow glow and you could barely see even the streetlight. And here's the nine-year-old neighbor boy, knee-deep in snow at the end of the driveway, keeping the driveway open so other family members could come Aww. in. So even in that picture, I was seeing everybody reacts differently. Everybody has a role. So as we write, we don't just write our own personality. Yeah. We write other personalities into the story too. Not everybody is going to be brave. Yeah. When the when the dragon shows up on the scene, but not everybody is going to flee either. Right. And somebody's going to write down the three point list of what we need to do next. That's right. That's right. And, you know, you've got me thinking about uh, all the kinds of books that I love to read and um, several of which I like also to write uh, and all the different kinds of movies and TV shows I like. And and I have to say that I, I love the um, sort of horror movies. Uh, I, I'm sure that there is a word for the genre, but thriller, it's not coming to me. The, not the, ones are, it's... The, the ones that are like um, uh, satire, I guess. I guess like oh. the satire horror movies where you literally have all the, the different uh, caricatures of characters and all together, it's hilarious. Yes. Because you, know, yes. you do have the guy going, first, we have to decide how many monsters are out there. How many <laughs> axes do we have? How many, how many choices do we have for exits upstairs, downstairs? You know, and everybody else is like, stop talking and run. And somebody yeah. else is, yeah. <laughs> so honestly, that can work for just about any kind of emotion or dramatic moment in any kind of genre, right? Absolutely. And think of prairie romance. There, think of the disasters that would happen on a prairie romance, all any kind of them. And there's going to be a wide mix. If all the characters have the same kind of emotions and the same reactions, it's going to be a very dull story. Yeah. Or it'll be a story about that kind of character all living together in the same community, which is a whole different thing. <laughs> yeah, that's, so, a, that's a whole different kind of uh, trouble. <laughs> thing. So if we're studying neuroscience and, and if we're reading articles that are about how different personalities respond to, to different um, situations, if we're observing who in my family of five siblings 
who is the one who's going to plan the baby shower? Who's the one that's going to make the food volunteer? I'll make twice the food as long as I don't have to plan. Who's the person who's going to lead the games? And we always count on that person to lead games because the rest of us don't want anything to do with that. Who's the one who's going to volunteer for cleanup? You will find those members, even within your own family or your circle of friends. We need each other because we fill in gaps for each other. The same thing will be true with either the characters in our books or the way we take a look at a nonfiction subject and how our readers also have different personalities. Yeah, yeah. So are we making sure that within our nonfiction article or our nonfiction book, are we making sure that the way we're expressing it is going to be expressed for all those different kinds of people who are going to be reading it? They're not all going to be like you. Yeah. And that's another key, key, key point for writers is that when we're writing a book, it's not about us, the author. It's all about the reader. So even what we what words we use or whether we decide to explain the word or not or uh, or the way that we're expressing the emotion, or even even in writing Facing the Dawn, I realized that there were going to be moms and wives who would have had a f- grief that is very raw and fresh. Why would I dare offer a book that does that and brings that all to mind? Yeah. And one of the reasons, one of the very reasons is to show different personalities reacting to the same kind of pain. Maybe that will help them to embrace how their children are reacting or how their spouse is reacting or how their friends are reacting to make a complete whole picture of what people go through when there's great, great loss. Yeah. Yeah. That's, that's a good point. Um, I've noticed that also in your book that, you know, both of the, the other two kids in the family react differently Mm -hmm. and then, um, the best friend and, um, the neighbor across the street. And Mm -hmm. I'm like, Oh, I really like this. This is like every single person seems real because they Mm -hmm. seem just different enough from the other people, Mm -hmm. even though in a, in another setting, like in a first draft for me, I would be worrying that all of my characters sound too much alike because, um, they're all um, in general, nice people who want to help <laughs> each other. And in my mind, I'm like, oh, all these people are way too similar. But, um, but it's interesting. I think that maybe finding a book that you like, that you think to yourself, oh, all the characters are really different, even though they all obviously like fit together as a group, maybe is a good thing to kind of stop and and think, uh, take notes, maybe when you're reading it or go back to it and just ask yourself, you know, how did all these people who, uh, you know, are are maybe part like part of the same church or part of the same community or Mm -hmm. (laughs) for me, all teachers, my groups, yeah, all teachers, all writers. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah. But but then how are all the people in this situation different enough? And then how can I make my people just different enough that it's even more interesting? You might find too, all of us might find too, as we write that we do certain things that are kind of similar in a lot of our books. Uh, What they talk often these days about that the most appealing books are the ones where there's a, where the female lead character is strong. Uh, Not necessarily the Victorian, I have the vapors kind of woman, but strong and brave and walk into whatever they're facing because 
eventually we as writers came to realize, no, that is who we are at the core. That explains the Rosie the Riveters from, from the war. Um, right. Because when when given the opportunity and when called upon, there's a deep, deep strength. And you'll see that in the pioneer women too, the real ones, as well as the ones that show up in books, that there is a, a deep strength that sometimes is allowed to be shown and sometimes not allowed to be shown. But what I find in my, with my characters, when I look back at my books, almost every single one of the male lead characters, one of his, he has two key components to him. One is exceptional kindness and humor, at least some kind of sense of humor. I, I had a secondary character who had no sense of humor as a male. He was not the one that we want to keep on the pages all the time. Yeah. And of course there are villains and there are those people who act like villains or seem like they are. And then they turn out to be the answer in the end. But, but um, we as writers, it's okay for us to have a certain character quality that shows up in a lot of our books, but I have to be careful too, that I don't make them look like the same character. I just give them a different name. Right. So what's, what's different about them and how they respond or what's their strength or weakness so yeah. uh, and we could talk about that kind of idea forever because it's yes. fascinating to talk about characters and we could probably kind of um swing back around to what we talked about at the beginning that a lot of it is just us um actively paying attention like mm. we notice things all the time but to actively notice mm. and record it, whether that's a slip of paper or in the notes app on our phone or mentally record it somewhere. Let feel the feels, uh, you know, allow yourself to feel somebody else's emotion about what just happened. Yeah. Uh, if, if a person who is near retirement age is laid off and uh, they may feel a freedom with that, they may feel like, well, it happened a little early and I think we're going to be okay financially. Not every person near retirement age is going to feel that same way. Yeah. So watching for how others are feeling are, is also going to help make us better people as right. human beings. Yes. Yeah, exactly. The whole building empathy thing, which mm. um, I, I think, I mean, I'm not sure. But I think that um, during a period when we can't physically be with other people very much, mm. uh, being aware of whether or not we're losing touch a little bit with how mm. to be empathetic, I mm. think is, is a good thing. Um, I mean, I think so. I've been noticing it in myself, like uh, watching church instead of going to church. Mm. So I'm, I'm no longer volunteering. Plus I just happen to take on some, some work related things that have me working six days a week. Mm. So, um, two more, something about, I, I keep seeming, seeming to find churches where there's a whole lot of women in their twenties and thirties, and then there's mm. these baby booms. So 2020, we had eight babies in the next two months, we'll have two more babies. Mm. And so, you know, people want to um, cook for them and stuff. And I'm like, mm. okay, hold on one second. If you need sugary sweets that taste like chocolate and something like that i'm your girl but yeah. if somebody's gluten or vegetarian like I, there's nothing i can do and yeah and and i'm not going to go there and see them so i'm not going to mm -hmm. hug them i'm mm -hmm. not um talking to them um so i'm noticing that um 
that I'm beginning to ask myself, am I pulling away from being a part of this community mm -hmm. or do I need to do anything else to make sure that I continue to stay involved in this community in a way that is um, healthy and growth oriented and, uh, you know, things like that. Anyway, and maybe not all writers <laughs> like sit around thinking about all these things in their mind. I have no idea if anybody else does. Tell me, do you, Cynthia? <laughs> yes. It, yes, I oh, do. Good, I'm not the only one. And in fact, that that yesterday, uh, this is we're recording this on a Monday. So yesterday, uh, I was feeling that we had like 30 below plus a wind chill factor, something. Wow. So we were colder than the North Pole uh, yesterday. So we we opted because we live out in the middle of nowhere uh, to not travel to church because we do have an in-person service that's masked and everything at the moment. And everybody will know what we're talking about when we say that. But um, for any kind of situation like that, whether you're home um, with an illness or you're home with, right. with that there's a new baby in the house or something, that virtual worship service is a wonderful thing. I found myself, instead of just consuming it, I was going to need to get involved even during the service. So along the side, it's shown through Facebook live streaming. I made sure that I was commenting either to other people who were watching or to the pastors when they'd eventually get to see it or the worship team or, or something. And just taking the effort to not just be entertained by it, yeah, but take notes um, and then um, do the, at making those comments was keeping me a little bit more connected, but I'm missing the hugs yeah. and I'm trying to think of what are the things, what are the unique things? And this is where the creativity has to come out in our living as well as our writing is what, where are the things that I can make that connection difference? One of the things that is so typical about writers is that is that we like to lock ourselves in a room by ourselves and be with just our keyboard and our thoughts yeah. and the story that we're working on or the, the nonfiction project that just has consumed us. And it's real easy after a while to not have coffee with a friend. Let's pretend that that's possible. Yeah. Uh, not have coffee with a friend because we're on deadline or not experience life, yeah. what are we going to write about then? Yeah. If we have distanced ourselves from people, if we have felt that my problems are so huge, I cannot involve myself in anybody else's problem right now, then we're losing exactly the tools we need in order to be able to write well. So somehow we need to find a balance there to be able to accomplish that. I love that. And, and I'm guessing that that is not something that we can be prescriptive with. People mm. are going to have to ask themselves, how can I add more balance? Yep. What's my role in this? How, how, what can I, what do I have the bandwidth for? Yeah. And it may not be baking the, making the casserole, but it may be something else. Um, and the, and we are gifted with words, but sometimes we fail to realize how, our use of words to touch one person may be the thing that is our shining moment in our whole writing career, yeah. as opposed to a book that wins lots of awards. But it's that note that we sent to the 
to the um, elderly woman who was has been unable to get out of her house for a year and a half. Yeah. Or more than that, or is caregiving for a sick um, spouse. And that note that we send with the words that we've been given may be our shining moment as a writer. Yeah. And that would be so worth it. The tagline to my podcast and in my teaching is write a book and change the world. Mm. And I absolutely believe that it's worth the time to write something, whether it's a book or anything else that changes somebody's life that, that all or their moment, their moment, change a moment for them. Yes. Yes, exactly. I love it. I get so inspired when I'm talking to other people who are like, yes, yes, yes. Let's make people's lives better. Even if it is just for a moment. So true. Uh, Cynthia. All right. We have to talk more because among other things, you're also an agent. So we'll have to have you back on the show talking about life and writing and publishing from that perspective as well. I would love to do that. That would be, I would be honored and it would be a great joy. Ah, awesome. But today you are here as Cynthia Rukti. Did I say your name right? (laughs) That's that's it. The author. So Facing the Dawn is the newest book. Tell us where can people find you uh, online, in bookstores, et cetera? Where, Where should they go to look for you? The easiest place probably is to go to my website, which is CynthiaRukti.com. But the name is hard to spell. So they can also go to hemmedinhope.com. Those are easier words to spell. That'll yeah. take them to the very same website. Huh. But And I'm on social media, most social media places. I'm on there just as Cynthia Rukti. Um, Rukti is spelled R-U-C-H-T-I for those who don't know. And uh, the, the Hemmed in Hope uh, website is because my tagline is I can't unravel. I'm hemmed in hope. So Aww. if they go to the hemmed in hope website, they'll find all the books there. Uh, there are links to places where they can purchase if they choose to. And uh, it's a joy. It's truly a joy to be able to connect with readers, but to connect with other writers too. Excellent. Oh, good. I'm so excited. Thanks for giving us all that information. And thank you for, um, for saying that uh, you like connecting with writers. Sometimes we think, oh man, I'd really like to talk to that person more. Just send them an email and tell them how, you know, my, my book got so much better after this piece of advice, but no, they're probably busy, but that is nobody's too busy to get an email from somebody who was like, that was really great what you did to help me, right? (laughs) Absolutely. It means a lot. And sometimes it's just that one little nugget, but it's going to make all the difference. That's right. Oh, great having you on the show. Thank you so much for taking the time and your big uh, book tour um, online. (laughs) And we really appreciate your time. Thank you so much. If I could just say a one last word, one final word to the writers out there, keep writing, keep trusting, keep growing, keep listening, and stay hemmed in hope. 